Good morning. I'd invite you to stay standing for our New Testament reading. We actually have two. You'll see in your order of worship, the first is from Matthew chapter 1, and the second from Hebrews chapter 1. So today is our first Sunday of Advent, and we'll be taking our Advent texts this year primarily from Hebrews, though you will also be hearing each week a portion of the birth of Christ from the Gospels. First, this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And now Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. I'd invite you to stay standing for a prayer. Gracious God, we do need your help. We ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts the truth of your word, that Christ might be lifted high in our midst, that you would indeed fix our eyes on him, and as we look upon him, we would be changed. We pray this all in his name. Amen. And you may be seated. As we look at Hebrews this Advent, I think it's helpful to keep in mind that the book seems to have been written to a group of first century Christians from a Jewish background, a group who likely were struggling with what it means to follow the risen Christ, given that they couldn't see him with their physical eyes or hear them 
hear him with their physical ears. See, these new believers had a rich heritage of external realities that were present in their religion. The temple, the priests, sacrifices, Moses. All these were things you could see, do, and accomplish. For example, you could physically walk into the temple, you look around and see the furniture, you hear the priest with your ears, perhaps you feel the collar and the tug of the sheep or the bull that you brought in. Perhaps you have to wrestle the animal into the hands of the priest, you see the knife, you hear the bleating, you see the blood, you smell the burning of the meat, and then again you hear the blessing of the priest and you leave reminded that your sins have been covered by another. And then all of a sudden, word on the street is that a man killed by the Romans on a hill outside of town has fulfilled all of these things. All along, throughout the centuries, those things were never the end of the story. They always pointed forward to someone, and now that someone has come. Advent. And the author of the Hebrews, whoever he is, goes to great length to tell his readers this truth. Jesus is better. So, throughout the book, he is the better temple. He is the better priest. He is the better sacrifice. He is the better Moses. Jesus is better. And Hebrews is written to lift our eyes to see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 12.2, look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. We are not unlike those first century Jews. We too hear the message of a man killed by the Romans on a hill outside of town. Word on the street is still that our whole faith is built on and fulfilled in him. Okay. But we look around in our lives and it seems like we can get along so well without him. Doesn't it feel that way at times? Haven't there been days, months, perhaps entire seasons of life that tend to pass in this fog and then one morning you wake up and you realize, oh God, I've neglected Christ. I thought I was being faithful, but oh my, I've, I've been unfaithful. Surely that's not just me and these first century Jews. The, the us in verse 2 is us. Surely all of us need the warning from Hebrews 2.1 from our confession repeated over and over throughout this book. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. My hope for the next few minutes is that the Spirit of God might help us all to pay close attention to what we've heard. Jesus is better. May we not neglect him. Advent, he comes, he came. So, in an attempt towards that end, I'd like to ask our text three questions. First, 
Who came? Second, how did he come? And third, why did he come? So first, who came? And spoiler alert, the answer is right there, the Son of God. Verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. These verses are verses of contrast, you hear that, but, which makes the Son shine by holding him up against what came before him. Sometimes, if you're having trouble seeing the authenticity of something, whatever it is, maybe a dollar bill or a work of art or a coin of some sort, it's helpful to contrast it with another. That's sometimes all you need to see it truly shine. And that's what happens here in these verses. Notice the four contrasts. Time. Uh, Long ago is contrasted with these last days, which is now. Recipient, So our fathers are contrasted with us. Clarity. Many times, in many ways, is contrasted with the conciseness, the completeness of God's current speech. And agent, the prophets, are contrasted with the son. And what's the point? What are we meant to see about the real deal? What is better about Jesus? And simply this, God has spoken in his son. And I'd like to unpack that just a little bit. First, God has spoken. The thrust of these verses in the beginning of Hebrews, the thrust of Advent, is that our God has revealed himself. Because after all, what can you truly know about anyone if they choose not to reveal themselves? You know that Hannah and I have a four-year-old, and our four-year-old doesn't stop talking. She reveals herself. What's on the inside is no secret ever. But I hear that's not always to be that way. I'm told that during the adolescent years, things shift, and I might have to be more proactive in in drawing out what's on the inside of her. The the self-revelation will greatly decrease, and I need to be more proactive in getting to know her. And at times, all of us are tempted to think that God communicates more like that adolescent holding himself back, aloof, waiting for us to somehow show enough interest, self-reserve this enigma to be solved. Let's not belittle that. Surely there's room in Scripture, the Psalms testify, um, to honestly groan about seasons when it seems like God is far away and hard to figure out. But the gist of verse 1 here, and the Psalms as a whole, is that even in those times, God speaks. Listen to Psalm 19. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God has spoken lavishly over and over again here in the law of Moses, there in the Proverbs of Solomon. 
here in a prophecy from Isaiah or Jeremiah, here in a historical narrative, there in a psalm of lament. God has spoken now in sun. Before it was hazy, dim, many times, many ways. Sundry, the good Presbyterians would say. To our fathers, passed down over and over, but now he has spoken in son. And the question is, can you get any more tender, loving than that? At this point, there's much we could say about God speaking to us in son. But the emphasis here, if you look at the text, seems to be the link between the Son of God and the heir of God. The word heir in verse 2 is linked to the word inheritance in verse 4. So, who is the Son? He's the heir. And it's helpful in unpacking this to see where else Son and heir are linked together in Scripture. One of those places is the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21. Do you remember that parable? The master plants this beautiful vineyard. It flourishes, it blossoms, but he goes away to another country and he leaves it in the care of tenants. Harvest season approaches and the master wants his fruit from his vineyard that has been his all along, so he sends a servant to get the fruit. That servant is beaten out by the tenants. What? Okay, the master thinks, I'll send another. The second is killed. And we're kind of scratching our head. Who are these tenants? The third servant is stoned. More servants. They come, listen, tenants. This is the master's vineyard. You're fools. Dead servant after dead servant after dead servant. Ah, the master must think, okay, these servants aren't working. So listen to Matthew 21. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard killed him. Who came? God's son, the heir of all things. But we neglect this because how did he come? When you look at the sun this Christmas, perhaps you see him there in the manger outside of the inn. Or you see him there hanging on a cross outside of town. Or you hear him on the mountainside with his disciples teaching them that foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And the thing that I think will strike you immediately about him is his extreme poverty. We heard it from Isaiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Why? You might say to yourself, he's so poor. And Hebrews comes to us and says, oh no, you've got it wrong. 
This poor man who was born in a stable, who, as far as we know, owned not even the clothes on his back. This poor man, he is the heir of all things. So we get so mixed up. At times, all of us are like those tenants. We want the vineyard to be ours. See, the master has entrusted us for a time with many, many things. Tease it out for a second. Are you a parent of children? Think of it. He, the Son of God, is the heir of your children. He is the one to whom they ultimately belong. And he has made you, me, a tenant, a steward, an ambassador. He has said, cultivate these little souls in your home so that when I return, they might be bearing fruit for me. So do the hard and consistent work of plowing the ground in the lives of your children. Discipline, counsel, instruct, guide, but always remember they are mine. But all of us as parents at times we forget this. We spin our wheels and we toil in vain trying to shape them into our own image, trying to muscle them into our likeness so they'll just behave. No, they are not for you. They are for him, the heir of all things. Are you a student working toward an education? Think of it. He has entrusted you this education that is actually his. But we forget this. We plan out our lives in ways that center on ourselves and our happiness and our desires. And we forget that the whole purpose of our studies in the first place is that when we see the heir coming to this vineyard one day, we might be able to say, here it is. Here's my life and the fruit of it. Might the master be pleased that all along I've been studying unto his glory. He is the heir. It's been his since day one. Or did COVID recently restructure your work life so that now you work from home more than before? He has this like new flexibility and free time. That is not your time. He is the heir of all things, and he's given that to you for the glory of the master. And this advent, he is coming to you. He, the heir of all things. And the question is, how will you receive him? What type of tenant, steward, are you? How have we tried to keep the fruit for ourselves? How have we mixed up the Lord's prayer and prayed, my kingdom come, my will be done? Miss Davis often tells the little students, we're all glory thieves, every one of us. We make the vineyard about ourselves. And the vineyard is nothing less than all things, everything that you have, everything that is, your home, your time, your iPhone, your husband, your wife, your children, your singleness, your job, your 401k, your co-workers, your education, our church, our new building, our pastor, 
our city, our nation, all of creation is his. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch of all creation upon which Christ does not place his finger and say, mine. The vineyard is his and he's coming, the heir of all things. Let us give him the fruit in his season. May we not neglect him. For Paul said, from him and to him and through him are all things to him be the glory. Amen. But how did he come? Well, look at him again. And I think in addition to being struck by his poverty, you will be struck by how human he is. He was born of a woman. He grew up a child who became a man. He walked around in the created order and he ate food and drank drink and he is one of us. And again, Hebrews says, now look, look again. This baby, this child, this man who walked the streets of Jerusalem in the first century, he is the one through whom the world was created. Not only is all that you have for him, it is all from him. John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, we ask the little children, why ought you give him glory? He made me. And we're beginning to see that this man was not just a man at all. This poor man, the heir of all things, this child in a manger, the creator of the world, this human being is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This man is not just a man, he is God. And again, how did he come? Oh, well, when you look at him there, perhaps you see him in the arms of Mary. A baby being upheld. He seems so dependent. For what's more helpless, honestly, what's more helpless than a little baby? Or the other end of his life, you see him on the cross calling out for something to drink? So needy. How did he come? Dependent, helpless, needy, but once more Hebrews provides the full picture. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The baby who Mary held in her arms is the one who upheld her very life in that moment. As he nursed at her breast, he was simultaneously the one who provided food and drink for all of creation. This man who slept under the stars held the stars in place. This man who breathed his last and died is the one who keeps you and me breathing every moment of every day. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But I think we neglect this too. We bounce around in this frenzy thinking that it all depends on us. We carry stress and anxiety at very high levels because, let's be honest, what if we drop the ball? Or maybe it's not us. What if they drop the ball? A lot depends on that person over there. And no, no, Hebrews says, we know where the buck stops. 
It's with the Son of God, the one who even this moment is giving you another breath, another breath. He sustains the universe. He keeps the earth rotating on its axis. He, the Son of God. And so the last question, why? Why did he come? What's noteworthy about this passage is that it only mentions one thing that Christ uniquely did while on earth. All that the passage has said so far of Christ has been true of him since eternity past. He, the second person of the Trinity, has always been the Son, the heir of all things. He has always been the creator, the radiance of God's glory, and the upholder of the universe. Here, though, is why he came to earth. Here is the one thing in this passage that he distinctively accomplished while on earth. He made purification for sins. It's the same thing the angel told Joseph in our passage from Matthew. Before Jesus was born, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So why did Jesus come? Why is Hebrews going through this long length to hold him up in his beauty as better than all that has come before? And why have we taken some time this morning to hold up the Son of God? the heir of all things, condescending to poverty, the creator of the world in the womb of a woman, the radiance of God's glory in the obscurity of a rejected man, the upholder of the universe upheld in his mother's arms. Why? Because he's saved us from our sins. And at this point, what we come to first and foremost is an objective truth. The book of Hebrews will go to great lengths to hammer it out. Jesus made purification for sin. Before him, the whole purpose of the religious system of God's people was to look forward to him. It was to train our eyes that we needed a better sacrifice and a better high priest that we, all of us, are irreparably broken and marred in our sin and need to be made whole and made clean by someone else. Lamb after lamb and priest after priest proclaimed this message. You are a sinner and you need to be cleansed by another who is pure. And, And how did they know that something better was coming? Because the system of sacrifices never actually accomplished purification for sin. It needed to be repeated over and over and over. But here, Hebrews 1, 3, past tense, completed. He made purification for sins. Prove it. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in saying that he sat down, the author is saying he is the ultimate fulfillment. For the earthly high priest would never have sat down in the presence of God. Notably, actually, 
There isn't even a chair mentioned for the priests in all the temple furniture. Why? They don't sit down. Their job is never done. Here, though, Christ sits down. It's finished. The Son of God came to purchase from sin. He did this through his perfect life and death and resurrection, which, when it is applied to us, cleanses us and makes us pure. So that, like the Hebrews of old, when they had the Lamb's blood on the doorpost of their house, when we have Christ's blood on us, death passes over us. It does not rest on us. We have eternal life. Or take it from David, who, after his sin with Bathsheba, called out, Psalm 51, Purge me, and I shall be made clean. And Hebrews screams back to David, David, Christ is the one who purges you. Christ is the one who makes you clean. And I say to you this Christmas, Christ has come to purge sinners, sin from sinners in this room. Why did the Son of God come? Why do we celebrate Advent? Because Jesus has saved us from our sin. Ironically, it seems that sometimes at Christmas it's even easier to neglect Christ. For we're tempted with the pressures of the season even more sorely to look at our own needs, ourselves, the pressures of our lives. I've said it and heard it from some in the room. My December is so busy already, it's filling up. We're like my two-year-old. We're, we're too busy to listen to the Bible. Today, this passage comes to us and says, let us look up from our busy Decembers. Sin is real. Actually, it's the most serious and costly problem of your life. And that's true because it required the most serious and costly price for God to pay to clean it off of you. And he has paid that. He has paid it in his son, in himself, for sinners. And he sends his son to us, the heir of all things, the creator. May we embrace him and not reject him. May we treasure him and not neglect him. I'll close by reading the words to a hymn. Who is this so weak and helpless, child of lowly Hebrew maid? Rudely in a stable sheltered, coldly in a manger laid? Tis the Lord of all creation who this wondrous path has trod. He is Lord from everlasting and to everlasting God. Who is this that hangs there dying while the rude world scoffs and scorns? Numbered with the malefactors, torn with nails and crowned with thorns. Tis our God who lives forever mid the shining ones on high in the glorious golden city reigning everlastingly. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray again as I prayed in the beginning 
that your Holy Spirit would come and do a work which we cannot do ourselves, to turn our eyes upon him, the Son of God, the heir of all things, the creator of the world who has indeed purified us from our sins. And as we look at him, might we be changed. I pray all of this in his name. Amen.